Hi, I'm Ella Farrasmith and welcome to the Unequal Truths podcast, where we hear from successful professionals currently working in the market research industry who, like me, entered from low-income backgrounds. Listen in as guests share their personal journeys in market research and we explore what we can all learn from their experiences to help our industry become more inclusive. So you're Steve, Stephen Lacey, and you've got over 20 years of experience in research, so a long time. And you are founder of The Outsiders, which is a research agency specialising in unlocking cultural, behavioural and communications insights for a big range of clients, really, anyone from Argos through to the Home Office and many more in between. And you started off as a planning director at Farm Communications, and then you moved over to another agency, Baby Creative. That's Um, right, yeah. And so tell me tell me about that move from planning through to research and how that happened. Well, well it's actually, it's actually a little bit more to that, actually. So when I was at university, I studied marketing, and I really enjoyed kind of advertising. And at that point, I was starting to read lots of campaign magazines, which is one of my kind of obsessive natures. I found it kind of quite fascinating to really understand what was going on in the advertising industry. And from there, I kind of always wanted to be a kind of strategist. And trying to be a strategist when you went to... West Thames College, West Thames University, rather than Oxford at the time, and you weren't white and middle class and kind of privilege was was incredibly difficult. So I tried to think about how else can I get into the industry. So I started life at Capital Radio in sales, and then I went to Cara as a media planner, and there I realised I was a little bit kind of dyslexic with numbers. Really not a good strength if you're a media planner. <laughs> so, yeah. so, so from there I thought, okay, what, what do I enjoy doing? And I enjoy really understanding kind of what makes people kind of tick and getting close to understanding the audiences, and I enjoy talking to people. So I then trained at HPI Research, where I worked on kind of mainstream kind of research clients, and then from there I went to a company called Rosenblatt, which is run by a guy called John Cohen, who was an ex-planner from Hal Henry. And, and part of a lot of the work he was getting was with really kind of hard-to-reach audiences. And as soon as I started talking to kind of working-class and hard-to-reach audiences, I really found my niche, so speak, and found my connection points. I think because I come from a working-class background, I felt that I kind of understood them. I then went to farm and worked on a lot of kind of government work where I was connecting and trying to do behavioural change with that kind of audience. So, so I kind of back and forth between kind of strategic planning and, and research. Fascinating. You kind of have a bit of a Jules perspective to, to share with us and experiences to share with us. That's really cool. Before we start in earnest, I've been doing this okay. for everybody. We have a quick fire round of random questions just so we can just okay. hear some, some random stuff about our guests, really. So top of mind, what is your favourite colour? My favourite colour, red. Star sign. Uh, Libra. Your favourite animal? Tiger. Favourite food? Who you Uh would want to play you in a movie of your life? Oh, George Clooney. Okay, and what superpower would you like to have? To warm people up, make people feel warm and happy. Oh, that's one I've never heard before. I like it, I like it. (laughs) Brilliant, thank you so much for indulging me. (laughs) Thank you. Doesn't doesn't really mean anything, although, you know, who knows, by the end of this series, maybe I'll find it does mean something. Everyone's an air sign. 
meaning of life. <laughs> uh, well, if there are any listening, please tell me what it will mean. Yeah, me these are just random, random questions <laughs> I come out, out of my imagination. So. <laughs> right, okay. so, it's really great yeah. to hear from you about how you describe your background and particularly what about that made you feel different when you entered the market research industry. Okay, so there's quite a few things. So I was born with, with a disability. I have a missing tibia and a shortness of the tibia. Mm-hmm. I have two toes on one foot and four on the other. And then I have what's called a lobster hand, which is, a, I suppose, a bit like, the best way to describe it, I suppose, is like Captain Hook from Peter Pan. When I was born, the doctor said I'd never kind of walk, and I had, had a privilege of having a, a very kind of strong mother that would make me up, uh, get up by myself in the middle of the street. But when that was happening, people would often kind of spit out and say, how can you be so cruel to a, a disabled child that installed in me for a lot of kind of strength. My dad's family's from traveller background, so they were originally some Irish travellers that, that came over here, and I was brought up in a very kind of working-class environment, so around kind of a lot of kind of housing estates in, in, in the Felton area, I don't know if you know it, but in those days it was quite, quite a rough kind of area. I'm also neurodiverse, so I'm dyslexic, and I think I think in different ways. So I don't tend to think very structurally and, and, and logically, although with training that's kind of come, but I tend to think more in a, in a kind of butterfly kind of manner. Great description. Yeah, butterfly manner. That's, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> so that's really helpful just for me and for the listeners to yeah. kind of understand what your perspective and experiences are, are based upon. So, yeah, great. That's that's really good context for us all. And so t- tell me a bit more, and I know we've covered this again a little bit, but just a bit more about your journey coming to work in market research and some of the things, I suppose, that have helped or, or hindered you along the way. Yeah, I think I've got two kind of advantages in, in a way, I think, is that I understand a broad cross-section of audiences. So I really can kind of go into the middle of kind of a housing estate in, in the middle of uh, Leeds or Rochdale and I, I can just kind of talk to everyone and, and open people up. And I think I have a lot of empathy and understanding of, of where people have come from, especially in terms of, of struggle. So I, I think that that's, uh, I think, on, on the positive side, the, the side of real understanding of, of different kind of audiences and I think that's allowed me to have some people sound like the Louis Theroux of research so, <laughs> and other people sound like Ross Kent so I don't know which is better <laughs> kind of work but it allows me to open up some of those audiences that other researchers might find difficult to kind of talk to so mm-hmm. in my career I've been to, spoken to children that have been kind of sexually abused some work with domestic abusers I've spoken to those in the far right football hooligans those on the tipping point of Islamic extremism. I spoke to those dying of serious kind of diseases, teenage mums, people on the state have done ethnography and hung out with crack cocaine and kind of heroin users. So I think my ability to be able to understand different audiences, I think, uh, is a cross-section. In terms of moderation, actually, I think it's interesting. I think my disability helps in a way because I think when I moderate, people notice it and I don't know if they feel sorry, but it creates a bit of, of humbleness, I think, and I think that disarms people and allows people to open up. It's really interesting to think about the effect of the moderator. Yeah. Yeah, I'd like to explore that a little bit more. What, yeah. Could you give me any examples of how you think that's worked? Well, I think, I think I, I'm in a room, I think there's six or seven people coming to the room in, in a focus group, and then I think they, they notice my disability and because I'm quite outgoing and positive and kind of a lot of kind of energy around, around the way I kind of moderate, 
think in a way people don't feel threatened. So I think it breaks down barriers that even if you're an outsider, you don't feel threatened by the person you're trying to speak to. Mm -hmm. But I think it allows people to open up in, in a more interesting way without being threatened or judged by by what they say. Yeah, it's fascinating how that works in terms of how you appear, how you look to people. And and as you were kind of talking about the audiences you've engaged with, I was going, oh, yeah, really familiar. (laughs) Um, I've definitely worked with a lot of the the audiences you've mentioned too. My dissertation, in fact, was on crack cocaine users on an estate Uh, and dealers and drugs workers and and looking at that. So, yeah, so lots of familiarity and lots of cross So uh, tell me a bit more about how you would describe your experience in the industry in general. So, you know, whether it's been difficult or easy to navigate. Yeah, I I think think it's been a bit of a mixture of both, actually. So I think it it was quite hard for me to get into the industry initially. initially, And I would go to lots of interviews and and you don't know if it's due to disability or, or, or not. It could be a range of factors. But then eventually when I kind of broke into the industry, it was good. I think I had... I, had a, I think it was a time when learning styles hadn't really kind of been developed, and I can't remember what learning style I am, but I'm, I'm definitely kind of on that very kind of creative tipping point, and it's kind of see patterns that sometimes other people might not see. But I think the downside of that is I was terrible at logic and kind of structure and very disorganised and, and, and kind of chaotic. And when it came to things like writing screeners, it would be really, really difficult for me just to be able to get my head around those kind of elements. But you kind of talk about whether you mask things in, in, in the industry. And I think the, the one thing and the biggest kind of barrier that I, I felt is, is with, with dyslexia. Because with dyslexia, I always, more than my physical disability, but with dyslexia, I always felt that I was stupid. And I couldn't spell properly and I always felt that the people would judge me and think I wasn't very, very clever. And at, at times that would create a little bit of kind of an inferiority complex around kind of other people. As I feel that, that there's these really intelligent, articulate people and, and I just don't have, have written skills to really express the points that I want to make. Also, my brain was very, very fast because I've had to work a lot on slowing it down. So, so it would go like 100 miles an hour, which can have some kind of advantages sometimes. But it just means that, it's, again, it's quite hard to lock down those thoughts. And I remember I went to one agency, I went once say who it was, and they were like, we really want to employ you because you're, you're a person of difference and, and you're, you've got kind of a lot of strength and, and skills that are different to everyone else. And, and it was an agency, actually, and it, it was... It's only only one other man there, so so it's like thirty women. <laughs> so it's kind of a reverse in, in in a way. And what I found there was sometimes I found I didn't have conversation points with with, with people there, mm-hmm. um, most of them were female with kids. And it's a reverse, you know. People talk about football and how men dominate the football kind of conversation. I had the re- reverse feeling there, so I felt I mean uh, very much kind of outsider. But I don't think they really not wanted anyone different. They wanted someone that thought in a similar way themselves. And my dyslexia got got very much in the way. And I remember I took another job after I left, and the head of that agency, on reference, had actually told the that the people who hired me that I was dyslexic, and it was a problem. And and that that really kind of hurt. And yeah, I wow. Quite 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 difficult to, to kind of acknowledge that that level of discrimination of, of where someone would feel 
I think the other interesting thing is, is, is I come from a work, like sort of traveller and working class background, which, which is great. But I, I got went to private school, so my mum had sacrificed a lot and managed to raise money. I got some scholarship and went to a private school. So I kind of understand both sides of class, but sometimes I've, I've never really known where I can fit in in, in, in that kind of scheme. And I, I feel much more working class than I probably do middle class. So sometimes those kind of conversations especially if they're more kind of upper class where people talk about polo or cricket and, and just just different worlds of things that I, I'm just not used to. And I, and I think at times the industry felt very middle class and, and sometimes I could feel an outsider there. I think the other barrier that, that I had was that I worked for another company and they're a fantastic company, but I was working incredibly kind of hard and, and my mum died when I was younger, when I was, when I was 23. And, and after that, I had a lot of problems with drink and, and, and drug addiction. And I think I never dealt with my mum's death and it built up and built up and I was working all the time and blocking things out just through kind of, kind of work and through drink and everything. And I had a, I had a mental breakdown and, and it was just that moment in life where, where things were, were too much. And even at that point, I didn't feel confident to speak to the company to tell them before what was happening and they would have been fine with it and great with it but it was in the time when mental health was, was available and, and people would talk about it. Wow, yeah, loads of examples there. So, <laughs> yeah, really um, enlightening and fascinating. So maybe could we unpick those a little yeah, bit? Sure. So the mental health issue, I think, it, maybe should we start with that since that's where we sort yeah, of sure. the note we ended on and then we'll go back through some of the other things that you mentioned. Yeah, so it just got to the stage where I was working so hard that I just, I don't know if you ever had it, but I was, I was working on a big project and I just kept overanalyzing and overanalyzing and overanalyzing and, and I should have just left the project where it was 10 days before. And you know when you just keep picking and picking and picking and then I was just getting closer and closer to it and then I remember presenting it and, and I presented it to a board, I won't say what company, to a, a, and basically I, I just had a breakdown in, in, in presentation. I can't remember anything I spoke about or anything I said, but I must have just quite horrified. And then it was at that stage where I just said, oh, I just want to time out and to decide what I want to do and where I want to go. And so was it after that that you then started on your own or, or did you really no, I, I went back into I went into planning for a little while after that and then I set up on, by myself, set, a, set up an agency called Push, doing a lot of kind of creative development research. So that was my, yeah, I went back in, into the agency to set up my own thing. So I think I wanted, I just wanted to control work-life balance. Yeah. It's, it's no coming at all, but I think... In the old days, I'm sure you, you're freelance as well, but you, but you just sometimes you just be overworked. You be so many groups, so many projects, and it was just never ending. And I wanted to step back and give quality time to the project to really think about the project and what the meaning is, and just have more life. So, and I think COVID again done that. And I think it's for me, it's kind of slowed things down. And so I'm going to go back to uni part time, study Byzantine history, and you know it's just. I think you need those. You need that work-life balance, and things yeah. are changing. But, uh, but I think for many years it was a capitalist model of having to do as many groups as possible. Yeah, completely. I totally relate to factory, that as well. Yeah, factory. it was. It, yeah, it, it, was, factory, it yeah. was a bit like that. <laughs> At times, I can oh. totally relate. And burnout. And I think it's yeah, as you said, sort of getting more recognised now. You know, I think the MRS are running a wellbeing survey, aren't they? And have done. Yeah. So it's definitely becoming more recognised. But I think yeah, totally a big issue in our industry for, for sure. Yeah. And not really talked about often enough. Totally, still things are getting a lot better. 
a lot of hurdles, and I still hear some horror stories at times. But I think generally things are, are getting better and moving in, in, a, in a better direction, which is great. Yeah, it's great to hear. So another thing that you talked about is that living in two worlds and, you know, fitting. And also, I think what's interesting, and this has come up in some of the other conversations that I've had, is just around classification of who you are and how other people <laughs> deal with that or don't know how to deal with that necessarily. Yeah. So, yeah, like people's assumptions about, you mentioned, you know, you went to private school, but very much from a working class background. And so people wouldn't necessarily be aware of that. Or maybe, I don't know, just talk to me about the, the, that dynamic dynamic and how that's played out for you yeah I think I think think it's it's in terms of accent sometimes the the way you kind of pronounce words I think it's connections with sometimes with clients I mean I'm always being good with clients but sometimes you you might not always feel the kind of right kind of connection I think sometimes you would see things that you knew were wrong I'll I'll give you a classic example I remember working for a massive gambling client and the, my boss at the time, we were, we were on a train and we were going to the kind of meeting and she said, right, I think we, is it about innovation work together? And she's like, I think we need to exclude Eve because they just won't get it. And I was like, you can't do that, it's your audience. And then she presented it to the client and the client said, what are you doing? You're killing 50% of our audience. <laughs> so, so I think, again, I, I, I used to see it a lot, not so much in the industry now, but I think the industry used to be quite nervous itself about going outside its comfort zone. And I think even in terms of recruitment, people would be very scared about going outside their kind of comfort zone. So you'd ask for DE or you'd ask for E and you'd often get a D and you'd ask for a D and you'd, you'd end up with a C1 because the recruiters didn't, didn't want to have, don't know those kind of people and don't want them necessarily in their kind of house at, at that time. I, I think we, we had an industry that was very, very prejudiced and, and very middle class itself in thinking. I still think it is very middle class. In, well, in oh, I, I, I completely agree. I mean, hence this podcast, really, <laughs> in, in, a, in a lot of ways. I think that it's harmful for our industry. It's really harmful for the industry. And, and I've never talked about my own politics but, or anything else, but I think when I... I won awards for doing work around Brexit and wide work, white working class vote for Brexit. And, and I've done work around wider working class vote for the Conservative Party. Not totally, but, you know, there's 20, 21% lead with that, that audience. And the, I think the industry is, is, is very representative of that quite metropolitan, liberal way of thinking, which isn't necessarily the same heartbeat as, as the rest of the country. And even, even in values. And, and I know Reach and, and House 51 are doing some really amazing work in looking at people's values and how the mass mainstream's values are completely at odds with the industry. And that's a problem. It's not a problem if you're open to understanding others. But I don't know if we are necessarily open to understanding others. Yeah, I think it's two things, isn't it? I think you can be open to understanding others and still make some really bad judgments or calls just based yeah. on a lack of knowledge as well, or a lack yeah. of, or, or sort of, we've talked a lot about unconscious bias. I don't know if it's always unconscious or not, but it can be, certainly. And so I think, yeah, it's two things. You, you can be really open-minded, and I think that will set you in good stead. But if you don't yeah. have someone in the room to bring a different perspective, and I think this is true of all kinds of different diversities, it's a problem because you just, you're blindsided by things that you're just not conscious of or aware of. Yes. No, that, 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 I, think that's definitely, I think that's definitely true. And I, I, see, I see a lot of that kind of biasness. And 
think class is the one thing no one wants to talk about. We're really embarrassed about, about the white working class. And I always talk about the white working class is the biggest diverse audience in the UK because it feels powerless and it feels it hasn't listened to and it's got no power and no opinion. No one wants to recognise that fact because we feel uncomfortable around it. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. And I mean, we're barely, you know, we're just getting started on talking about other kinds of diversity. Yeah. There's a great movement happening with Black Lives Matters at the moment. Yeah. Things are becoming more conscious. Women as well, gender, a lot more light shone on the subject. So things are starting to slowly come in. But I agree with you. I feel like class or income background, because even the language, I think, is loaded. and, and it, it, it's completely, yeah. <laughs> and I, I I mean, I don't know what the right terminology is for me. Plus, I haven't even landed particularly on, on exactly what is right. I talk about income background because I think linked to your point about that sort of not necessarily fitting into the, the boxes people expect and it being really highly nuanced per person. I see that all the time. So when even when I see my Brexit work, I see women that are on the dole that could kind of play the piano or some of, some of the big building clients will tell you, you know, the builders that you say, oh, they're the working class. Some of them are, are driving Land Rovers and earning a lot of money, you know, probably more than some people in market research. Yeah. And I just think we make a lot of kind of judgments around class and we don't want to have a conversation around class. And it's interesting, I'm, I don't know if you've seen my LinkedIn post the last few days, but I've been talking a lot about how I'm speaking to white working class audiences at the moment and how they're feeling really angry about but not so much about the Black Lives Matter protest, but the lack of fairness. So 40,000 people were on, on the streets and the statues, which to them is a representation of the past where they feel kind of safe. And, and I'm having this conversation. And when I first had the conversation on LinkedIn, you could, you could feel that the industry didn't comment. So I was, that, they probably felt very uncomfortable, but you could see they weren't really reacting to it. And it's only been in the last few days where we're seeing violence start to rear its head and it'll probably come up this weekend, there's probably going to be a lot of kind of violence potentially that I think people are starting to understand and and I think we can get into this world of, of I'm going to call it a, a cultural war actually between liberalism on one side and, and then kind of more right thinking on the other and, but I think the dangerous point there is we don't look to the middle to really understand each other. We're falling into very binary positions and that worries me because I'm, I'm a traditional liberal I can sit down with anyone and have a conversation and I'll, I'll enjoy that conversation. I have a, there's things that I think are completely wrong and right, but I enjoy, I, I enjoy understanding people and, and I enjoy educating myself through others. And I think any good researcher should sort of fit into that position, really. That's our job. So, yeah, completely understand what, what you mean there. Can I just make one other Of point? course you can. I, I think with class, we used to be much better with class than we are now. So I think there was a time when the working class were a very respected group because they were the backbone of the country. They were the miners, the shipbuilders, the steelmakers. And then Thatcherism in many ways destroyed that and, and turned that on, on its head. But if you look at the advertising industry specifically, there was a time when a lot of the creatives started in the post group. And a lot of those creatives were from working class backgrounds. And those creatives understood mass mainstream and what makes people tick and I think that's been lost and I think we've gone backwards in terms of class instead of kind of forward. I completely agree with, with, with that analysis in many industries yeah and it's interesting actually because I'm speaking 
to a variety of, of people who hold different roles in the research industry, but even within market research, there's a bit of a class divide. I mean, I'd be interested to hear if you if you agree or if you, you think something different. But, you know, between operations, recruit, recruiters, field versus researchers. Oh, yeah, definitely. That's really interesting. <laughs> so true. <laughs> Your field and your working class, they're usually kind of salt of the earth working class people that know everyone in their community and are really connected and really plugged in. And it was interesting with COVID, I've been doing that, but I was going to do a a research study with with recruiters. I don't know if anyone's done that, but I just think they're they're probably some of the best architects of what's going on in public opinion. Completely. Yeah, there's a, there's a big difference. There's a big, big divide there. But I found a bit of snobbery throughout my years at different points. That people could be a bit disparaging about the site. Well, really, the researchers <laughs> talking about recruiters and, and things like that. I think there was a lot of snobbery and and even a, a little bit of kind of dominance as well. Like mm. we're paying you, you need to do stuff for us. And it'd be, it'd be really interesting for the MRS to actually do a study from the recruiter's point of view. It'd That's be fascinating, amazing. actually, because I, th- I think it's a really interesting angle to see how they, they, they feel about how the industry talks to them. Because I've seen some awful conversations with people having a go at the recruiters. And I think actually people forget that without the recru- recruiters, we have no research. Absolutely. <laughs> it's an alliance. It's not your employee. Yeah, no, completely. Yeah, thinking specifically, and and this is a kind of weird question, really, or I don't know if weird's the right terminology, but have asked it of of all of my guests, uh, many of whom are diverse in a number of different ways, like yourself. Mm -hmm. And I suppose, uh, is it possible to unpick how those different elements of being diverse have impacted your? So it's a really good point. Do you, do you want to talk about class or all of the different elements? Well, maybe if we could talk about class first and yeah, foremost, okay. and then maybe you can tell me a bit about how that intersects. I think I think class now is is is, is a benefit, and actually I think in, through my career, the coming from the class I've come through has been a, been a benefit because a lot of audiences don't, a lot of researchers don't really and and. Ad agencies don't necessarily understand the audience very, very well. So I think coming from that background allows me to understand the audience well. So I've kind of, it's helped me make a living, actually, mm-hmm. by understanding that audience. Yeah, so I, th- I think in a way it's an advantage because it's an audience I, I specialise in and I understand, kind of inside out, and I understand all the kind of nuances of, of that audience and and how they how they're feeling and, and and why they're kind of feeling the way they they do. So, so I think in that sense it's been positive. I think where it's been more difficult, I think is is in terms of um, generally just yeah just kind of the embarrassment I think around kind of language and, and and kind of cultural kind of reference points. I think I think in some ways it's been it's been good for understanding other. Cause, I kind of look at working class as a kind of subculture, and I think by looking at a subculture in the way an international researcher would look at look at a country, it's useful, and that's allowed me to understand other cultures really really well. So I do a lot of work around kind of Eastern Europe and, and uh, Middle East, and I think it allows me to understand barriers and entry points and why people feel the way they do. So I think in many ways it's, it's been, I think, a, a positive rather than necessarily negative. And have you had to make adaptations to to your 
behaviour or how you speak? Or no, I don't. I don't think. I don't think I've, I've made adaptions. Speaking is interesting, actually, because I, I think I do. I do slightly adapt my adapt my my language and the way I speak, speak depending who I'm speaking to. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't really ever notice. But I've got a lot of friends from Eastern Europe, and, and some Marty is English. Said, "God, you speak you speak like you're Russian when you're whispering." So, so <laughs> obviously, I adapt my I must adapt my language uh, at times, but with the with the right with different kind of audiences and, and different people. So I think I probably do that. In terms of other things, in terms of dyslexia, the way I've dealt with it is is now I have a way to make sure I have a designer and a proofreader. Mm. And that's true. That just helps me a lot. I mean, I think reflexia for my big, big one is you mm. always you always think about should I should I talk about this for an interview? Should I mention it? When I've mentioned it, have I lost an interview because of it? Then when you when you kind of arrive, when I used to arrive in a, a company, I'd I'd often go kind of inwards. I'm quite outgoing, but I'd often go inwards because of my dyslexia and. I'd be worried that I might spell something wrong and then people would think I'm really, really kind of stupid. And mm-hmm. so, so for me, that's, that's always been a really big barrier to deal with. And I, and I think it was, it was a big relief, I think, when I went to an ad agency and, and they hired me and they knew I was dyslexic and they were like, well, it's not a problem. We just get people to read your documents for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> simple answer, yeah. <laughs> really simple answer. Just, just don't worry about it. We're not... We're not hiring you. And I always remember, I had a really good playing director. He's now, he now runs a company called Marketing Mums, called Paul Jeffrey. And he always says, I'll serve you time. He said, look, you're 30 years old. Focus on your strengths and just get other people to help you with your weaknesses. And I just thought that made a lot of sense then. Yeah, no, it still makes a lot of sense yeah. now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And do you think that your background in whatever, guys, it has had an impact on, on your career trajectory? Yeah, I, yeah. I think at the beginning it was slower because of dyslexia. And I think I can write screeners very well because they're too logical and I just didn't get my head around them. Um, so I think, I think at that stage it was difficult. I think overall, I think I'm an outsider, which is why I come a company outsiders in many ways, and I'm, I'm a maverick. And and I think for that sense, I find it hard for my thinking to be constrained and boxed. So companies do things, and, and they they have their own ways of doing things, but those ways are often quite set. And I struggled being in a, in a place where. But I had to think a certain way, do these things in a certain style and in a certain kind of manner. Mm-hmm. And I found that quite suffocating. So in answer, I think I work better when I'm on my own or with a small team on a, on a certain project that I'm running. And so because of that, you feel like maybe your your trajectory has been impacted in the past? Well, I've just taken a different trajectory. I've just started to work, work with myself and I've seen that coming with a kind of the, the mental breakdown and, and, and kind of depression at that time and wanting a more work-life balance. I think it just made me make a decision of uh, this is, this is the, the direction that I, I want, want to go in. I'll tell you where I did have definitely, I can tell you one example where I definitely had a big barrier and that was I always remember going to a company, it was, a, it was an opinion-forming company, you know, doing political research, mm. and I love politics, and I love that, my, my policy is, is my big passion kind of point and big area. And I remember going in there, they were all, 
So I've been in the 1980s. They're all in their suit and tie, and they're all at Oxbridge. And I just remember doing interviews, and I was just like, God, I'm so different. It's just a completely different world. And it really felt like, the, I'm not going to say Westminster bubble, but it really felt like there was this bubble that was just completely different and alien to my world. Yeah. And so what do you think? I mean, I'm hoping, I don't know who's going to listen to this podcast, but I'm hoping a variety of people will also listen, you know, in the industry. And I'm just wondering what we could all learn from your experiences. I think, for me, I think the point, I think there's a number of things. I think we need to be much more open about class. I think as an industry, we have to have an acceptance of class. I think we've, we've got to understand that having people from different backgrounds is, is a benefit because it allows us to cut across much more diverse audiences and it's a lot of strengths that, that we can learn. I think we should embrace people from different political points of view. So I always remember hearing about MRS just after Brexit and someone asked the question, how many of you supported Brexit? And I think there's one person out of 300. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but and that, 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 I have concerns about that because I think, I think we're talking a lot about diversity but my big question is, are we becoming less diverse in the way we think and the people having certain kind of thinkers around us? And that's quite challenging, actually. And I, don't, and I think that's, that's the battle I think we, we have to look at. We have to say, are we starting to embrace diversity? But within the embrace of diversity, are we starting to have people that are feeling very kind of metropolitan, very thinking a certain way and all agreeing in a certain kind of manner? And that really worries me is about the research industry because I think that's going to lead to, to less quality, good research. Agreed. And how do you think, <laughs> a big question, I don't expect you to necessarily have all the answers, but do you have any ideas about how you think that this could be addressed? I think recruitment has to be a big area. I think encouraging working people, class people to think about research as, as, as a career point. But obviously there's, there's big problems with that. And one of the, the big stats that I always talk about, it's not a stat, it's a statement, is that white working class males, uh, young males, like 11 year olds, they have the lowest literacy levels apart from Romania in Europe. So yeah. there's some big structural elements that need to be addressed. And yeah, uh, I think having more representation is important. But I just don't think it's just a research industry. I think it's, I think it's a general cultural point as well. And I talk about when we, who was the last white working class music Zero, it's probably Oasis, and that's what 20 years ago, and that's that's a problem in in, in in terms of kind of culture as well. I think so. There's a, a lot of work that we need to do because I think there's there's some pockets of of the population that are very very distant from from who we are, and I don't think we're making enough effort to want to understand them. Yeah, I agree, and I agree. It's um, totally obviously a society sort of wide issue, but honing in on our industry, I think that it's in some ways even less excusable in our industry not to have a, a diverse set of voices um, because because we influence everything right from policy to toilet roll to you know the beer it, like everything is influenced by research and you, and you you see that bias and I hear about it time and time again you know I was hearing about someone doing a group some, something with working class and I think there's one working class person who said the solution was 
was to kind of do get people involved in high culture and, and ballet and opera and I think because the research was middle class and like that and was more that physical <laughs> mindset they're like this is what we need to do and another researcher was like no <laughs> just want to <laughs> you know cause, and I think we get led by our beliefs and, and I think our own biases about what we want in the world yeah. and, and you saw you saw a lot of that with COVID I think I do a lot of kind of trend forecasting and it has lots of limitations and but I think as an industry we're like this is what we want to happen but actually the question is 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 that the world we want to create well then then is this what's going to happen yeah exactly I heard some great talks and webinars and things when we were on lockdown that discussed just that you know when you're when you're doing futures work where yeah. most people just predict the world that they want rather than it really yeah, being based definitely. on you know what the world's actually <laughs> any kind of reality which is fascinating and so do you think what could be implemented by industry bodies employees employers I just think we've got to, do, we've got to get more training programs I think we've got to show people what what a great career it is and we need to be reaching out into pockets we've never really reached out into and just in, embrace people and, and encourage people to do more I always remember speaking to a recruiter and a recruiter was talking about how she wanted to get into research and my point was she didn't have a degree and she'd probably never get into research and she's probably probably one of the most insightful people I've ever met and that's a lot of talent and I don't think we can let talent be lost Agreed. And I always wonder, do you actually need a degree to work in market research? I think, research? You, do. I think yeah. you just have to have a passion for people and, and want to understand and an openness to understand what makes people who they are and, 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 and an inquisitive mind. And, and I, I don't think you need a degree. I agree. And actually, it's making me think of the point you made earlier about, you know, your simple solution, get a proofreader because you're, you're dyslexic, yeah. right? Well, yeah. you know, if, if there's a literacy problem amongst white working class boys in age 11, I think you were saying, in this country, well, yeah, there might be people with lit- literacy problems, but there's um, yep. ways around that, right? There so, is. Definitely. Hmm. Yeah. And I think, I think we, we just, just have to be, be more adaptive. But I think in, in that process, we have to we have to allow people to be who they are as well. Yeah, absolutely. And this is going to be this could be sound quite controversial, and and, I, and I'm very pro diversity. I think it's, it's a very good thing, but I think sometimes we can put people in boxes, and it's like, look at me, I'm like I'm like three, four different boxes. You know, who am I within mm-hmm. that box? I'm Steve. <laughs> yeah. So, with my with my thoughts, my quirks, my passions, my interests. <laughs> And some of my interests are really strange. You know, I love, love Byzantine history. Try and find someone to have a conversation with Byzantine history in the UK. Well, that's impossible. I come to all my own, even in that point. But do you know what I mean? I think, I think let's, let's, let's embrace people on an individual level as much and, and, and celebrate who they are as, mm. as, as people. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's that's a good point. What advice would you give to somebody with a similar background to you starting a career in market research today? I, I think for me, it's, it's for them to, to be impact passionate, be inquisitive, be challenging. I think that's, that's a really big one, I think, especially with class. You've got to constantly kind of challenge. Mm. I remember going to an ad agency recently and they're like, yeah, we've... we've, we've uh, what we're going to talk about today is we're, we're, going, to, we're going to talk about the working class and... Someone has had has a read a book and I can't remember what book it was. They read a book and, and they're doing a talk and they're like, yeah, the working class they all live in estates and they all have no money and uh, and they all like Stormzy. <laughs> 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 I 
Post-applied. What you're doing is you're doing the prototypicality of what you think a working-class person is. So the prototypicality of a bird, people would say, you know, a dove or blackbird. People would never say a penguin, you know. But we like to go to that prototypicality of what we think that stereotype or what that person is. And things are a lot broader. And as you said, it's more complicated than that. And then I think the other big thing, and I really want to see the research industry do this much more, is I want to see it focus on similarities, not just differences. I think we're getting obsessed with differences. I think looking at similarities is interesting and sometimes more interesting than, than differences. Looking at the, the similarities of, of life, not just differences. What do you mean by that? So you're saying the research industry should do it. Should we? Do you mean yeah. we should do it in, in analysis? Should we do it in recruitment? Like how are you, in what ways do you in, 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 in everything. In, in the way, I think, in the, in the way... I think recruitment's good. I think having different points of view in, in, in groups are good. I think we, we, we focus so much on, on homogenous kind of groups. I think when we ask questions, we should ask things, what, what kind of unifies, what brings us together, what's our kind of similarities. And again, I think in, in analysis, it's really important. And, it, and then culturally, I think it's important because I think we're in a position where We've fallen very much into polarity world, and, and that doesn't feel very English because we're a trading nation, but, but we're Brexit or Remain or Conservative or kind of Labour, and it's, it's very tribal or vegan or meat-eater or pro-environment and non-environment. And I mm. think, firstly, I think we missed the middle by doing that, and I think the middle can be, be a very interesting kind, kind of area, but what kind of joins these people together? I mean, there's, there's big things like love for family, Fairness. You know, there's some big drivers that I think we're ignoring sometimes because we've been pulled too much into tribalism. It's a strange time we're living in, isn't it, with all the... It's a strange time, yeah. <laughs> I thought it was going to get better, but it, it doesn't feel like it is. It's back. Well, this anyway. has been a fascinating conversation. I've got two, two last questions for you. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, well, the first one, we'll see if this is positive. I mean, I guess so this one is, what, what are your hopes for, for the future? I think the industry is doing good stuff at the moment. I think the head of MRS is doing good stuff. I think there's a lot of passion. I think there's a lot of drive to kind of make change. I think sometimes that changes upset some people, but I think to make change you will sometimes upset people. And I think that's a good thing and and, and, and applaud and I applaud that. I would just like to see us do more work around class. And I think the the other big battle, I don't know it's fascinating you're doing these podcasts, but there's a lot of researchers that believe class doesn't exist. That's shocking to me. There really <laughs> is. I've seen it time and time. There's, there's that thought that we're, we, class no longer exists anymore. And and I just feel like saying, I'm going to take you from ethnography to <laughs> <laughs> 200 miles outside London, and I'm going to take you to communities and... Then afterwards, you'd come and tell me whether you think class still exists or not. Yeah, I'm trying to think if I encountered those. I mean, I probably have, I suppose, but a lot of my work's mostly qualitative and ethnographic. Maybe I'm in a bit of a bubble, but, but luckily I haven't come across too many of, of those class deniers. Yeah, it's yeah. still there. It's there. Yeah. Interesting. Well, and it's not so much that upper class don't exist, because cause they tend to be middle class and probably and it probably fits their narrative. They don't believe the working class exists. Interesting. Okay, so hope for the future is fairly positive. Yeah, you think things yeah. are happening. Okay, cool. The last thing that I'd like you to do is love for you to sort of tell me what the song is and, and talk me through why why you chose that. 
So I've, I've chosen the Eye of the Tiger, which is which is from the Rocky Rocky film. And the reason I've chosen that is because it's a very mainstream film that I remember in the eighties that many people kind of love and representation. But also it's about being knocked down and getting back up, and knocked down and getting back up. And in many ways, that's going to be my life and, and career in in research. And I'm sure I'll continue being knocked down and get back up. But that's life, and, and that's where you learn. That's a brilliant choice. Thank you. Thank you so Thank much you for your much. time, Steve. That's been yeah. fascinating. listening and join me next week for the final episode in the series when i'll be talking to graham ederham director of project success at lucid and co-founder of the color of research